0: Chapter 28 of Main Street by Sinclair Lewis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 28 1 It was at a supper of the Jolly Seventeen in August that Carol heard of Elizabeth from Mrs. Dave Dyer. Carol was fond of Maud Dyer because she had been particularly agreeable lately, had obviously repented of the nervous distaste which she had once shown. Maud patted her hand when they met and asked about Hugh Kennicott said that he was kind of sorry for the girl some ways she's too darn emotional, but still, Dave is sort of mean to her. He was polite to poor Maud when they all went down to the cottages for a swim. Carol was proud of that sympathy in him, and now she took pains to sit with their new friend. Mrs. Dyer was bubbling, oh. Have you folks heard about this young fellow that's just come to town that the boys call Elizabeth? He's working in Nat Hicks's tailor shop. I bet he doesn't make eighteen a no week, but my, isn't he the perfect lady though he talks so refined and oh, the lugs he puts on belted coat and peak collar with a gold pin and socks to match his necktie and honest, you won't believe this, but I got it straight. This fellow you know he's staying at Mrs. Gurry's punk old boarding-house, and they say he asked Mrs. Gurry if he ought to put on a dress suit for supper. Imagine! Can you beat that? And him nothing but a Swede tailor! Eric Valborg his name is. But he used to be in a tailor shop in Minneapolis. They do say he's a smart needle pusher at that, and he tries to let on that he's a regular city fellow. They say he tries to make people think he's a poet, carries books around and pretends to read them. Myrtle Cass says she met him at a dance, and he was mooning around all over the place, and he asked her did she like flowers and poetry and music and everything? He spieled like he was a regular United States senator. And Myrtle, she's a devil, that girl, ha-ha, <laughs> she kitted him along and got him going. And honest, what do you think he said?" He said he didn't find any intellectual companionship in this town. Can you beat it? Imagine! and him a Swede tailor! My, and they say he's the most awful mollycoddle! Looks just like a girl! The boys call him Elizabeth, and they stop him and ask him about the books he lets on to have read, and he goes and tells them, and they take it all in and jolly him terribly, and he never gets on to the fact they're kidding him. Oh, I think it's just too funny!" The jolly seventeen laughed, and Carol laughed with them. Mrs. Jack Elder added that this Eric Valborg had confided to Mrs. Gurry that he would love to design clothes for women. Imagine! Mrs. Harvey Dillon had had a glimpse of him, but, honestly, she thought he was awfully handsome. This was instantly controverted by Mrs. B. J. Gogerling, wife of the banker. Mrs. Gogerling had had, she reported, a good look at this Valborg fellow. She and B. J. had been motoring and passed Elizabeth out by Magruder's Bridge he was wearing the awfulest clothes, with the waist pinched in like a girl's. He was sitting on a rock doing nothing, but when he heard the goggling car coming he snatched a book out of his pocket and as they went by he pretended to be reading it to show off. And he wasn't really good-looking, just kind of soft, as B. J. had pointed out. When the husbands came they joined in the exposé. "'My name is Elizabeth. I'm the celebrated musical tailor.' The skirts fall for me by the thou! Do I get some more veal loaf?" merrily shrieked Dave Dyer. He had some admirable stories about the tricks the town youngsters had played on Valborg. They had dropped a decaying perch into his pocket. They had pinned on his back a sign —'I'm the prize boob, kick me!' Glad of any laughter, Carol joined the frolic, and surprised them by crying,—'Dave, I do think you're the dearest thing since you got your hair cut!' That was an excellent sally. Everybody applauded. Kennicott looked proud. She decided that sometime she really must go out of her way to pass Hicks's shop and see this freak. Two. She was at Sunday morning service at the Baptist Church in a solemn row with her husband Hugh, Uncle Whittier, Aunt Bessie. Despite Aunt Bessie's nagging, the Kennicotts rarely attended church. The doctor asserted, "Sure." religion is a fine influence. Got to have it to keep the lower classes in order. Fact, it's the only thing that appeals to a lot of those fellows and makes them respect the rights of property. And I guess this theology is okay. Lots of wise old coots figured it all out and they knew more about it than we do." He believed in the Christian religion and never thought about it. He believed in the Church and seldom went near it. He was shocked by Carol's lack of faith and wasn't quite sure what was the nature of the faith that she lacked. Carol herself was an uneasy and dodging agnostic. When she ventured to Sunday school and heard the teachers droning that the genealogy of Shemsherai was a valuable ethical problem for children to think about, when she experimented with Wednesday prayer meeting and listened to storekeeping elders giving their unvarying weekly testimony in primitive erotic symbols and such gory Chaldean phrases as, washed in the blood of the Lamb, and a vengeful God! When Mrs. Bogart boasted that, through his boyhood, she had made Cy confess nightly upon the basis of the Ten Commandments, then Carol was dismayed to find the Christian religion, in America, in the twentieth century, as abnormal as Zoroastrianism, without the splendor. But when she went to church suppers and felt the friendliness, saw the gaiety with which the sisters served cold ham and scalloped potatoes, when Mrs. Champ Perry cried to her, on an afternoon call, "'My dear, if you just knew how happy it makes you to come into abiding grace!' Then Carol found the humanness behind this sanguinary and alien theology. Always she perceived that the churches—Methodist, Baptist, Congregational, Catholic, all of them—which had seemed so unimportant to the judge's home in her childhood, so isolated from the city struggle in St were still, in Gopher Prairie, the strongest of the forces compelling respectability. This August Sunday she had been tempted by the announcement that the Reverend Edmund Zitterill would preach on the topic, America, face your problems! With the great war, workmen in every nation showing a desire to control industries, Russia hinting a leftward revolution against Kerensky, woman suffrage coming, there seemed to be plenty of problems for the Reverend Mr. Zitterell to call on America to face. Carol gathered her family and trotted off behind Uncle Whittier. The congregation faced the heat with informality. Men with highly plastered hair, so painfully shaved that their faces looked sore, removed their coats, side, and unbuttoned two buttons of their uncreased Sunday vests. Large-bosomed, white-bloused, hot-necked, spectacled matrons, The mothers in Israel, pioneers and friends of Mrs. Champ Perry, waved their palm-leaf fans in a steady rhythm. A bashed boy slunk into the rear pews and giggled, while milky little girls, up front with their mothers, self-consciously kept from turning around. The church was half barn and half gopher prairie parlor. The streaky brown wallpaper was broken in its dismal sweep only by framed texts, "'Come unto me!' and The Lord is my shepherd," by a list of hymns, and by a crimson and green diagram, staggeringly drawn upon hemp-colored paper, indicating the alarming ease with which a young man may descend from palaces of pleasure and the house of pride to eternal damnation. But the varnished oak pews and the new red carpet and the three large chairs on the platform behind the bare reading-stand were all of a rocking-chair comfort. Carol was civic and neighborly and commendable to-day. She beamed and bowed. She trolled out with the others the hymn, How pleasant tis on sabbath morn, to gather in the church, and there I'll have no carnal thoughts, nor sin shall me besmirch! With a rustle of starched linen skirts and stiff shirt-fronts the congregation sat down, and gave heed to the Reverend Mr. Zitterill. The priest was a thin, swart, intense young man with a bang. He wore a black sack suit and a lilac tie. He smote the enormous Bible on the reading stand, vociferated, "'Come, let us reason together,' delivered a prayer informing Almighty God of the news of the past week, and began to reason. It proved that the only problems which America had to face were Mormonism and prohibition. Don't let any of these self-conceited fellows that are always trying to stir up trouble deceive you with the belief that there's anything to all these smart-aleck movements to let the unions and the farmers' nonpartisan league kill all our initiative and enterprise by fixing wages and prices. There isn't any movement that amounts to a whoop without it's got a moral background. And let me tell you that while folks are fussing about what they call economics and socialism and science, and a lot of things that are nothing in the world but a disguise for atheism, the old Satan is busy spreading his secret net and tentacles out there in Utah. Under his guise of Joe Smith or Brigham Young or whoever their leaders happen to be today, it doesn't make any difference, and they're making game of the old Bible, that has led this American people, through its manifold trials and tribulations, to its firm position as the fulfillment of the prophecies and the recognized leader of all nations. Sit thou on my right hand, till I make thine enemies the footstool of my feet," said the Lord of Hosts, Acts 2, the thirty-fourth verse. And let me tell you right now, you got to get up a good deal earlier in the morning than you get up even when you're going fishing, if you want to be smarter than the Lord, who has shown us the straight and narrow way, and he that passeth therefrom is in eternal peril. And to return to this vital and terrible subject of Mormonism. And, as I say, it is terrible to realize how little attention is given to this evil right here in our midst and on our very doorstep, as it were. It's a shame and a disgrace that the Congress of these United States spends all its time talking about inconsequential financial matters that ought to be left to the Treasury Department, as I understand it, instead of arising in their might and passing a law that any one admitting he is a Mormon shall simply be deported and, as it were, kicked out of this free country in which we haven't got any room for polygamy and the tyrannies of Satan! And, to digress for a moment, especially as there are more of them in this state than there are Mormons, though you can never tell what will happen with this vain generation of young girls, that think more about wearing silk stockings than about minding their mothers and learning to bake a good loaf of bread, and many of them listening to these sneaking Mormon missionaries, and I actually heard one of them talking right out on a street corner in Duluth a few years ago, and the officers of the law not protesting. But still, as they are a smaller but more immediate problem, let me stop for just a moment to pay my respects to these Seventh-day Adventists. Not that they are immoral, I don't mean, but when a body of men go on insisting that Saturday is the Sabbath, after Christ Himself has clearly indicated the new dispensation, then I think the legislature ought to step in." At this point Carol awoke. She got through three more minutes by studying the face of a girl in the pew across, a sensitive, unhappy girl whose longing poured out with intimidating self-revelation as she worshipped Mr. Zitterell. Carol wondered who the girl was. She had seen her at church suppers, she considered how many of the three thousand people in the town she did not know to how many of them the Thanatopsis and the Jolly Seventeen were icy social peaks, how many of them might be toiling through boredom thicker than her own, with greater courage. She examined her nails. She read two hymns. She got some satisfaction out of rubbing an itching knuckle. She pillowed on her shoulder the head of a baby who, after killing time in the same manner as his mother, was so fortunate as to fall asleep. She read the introduction, title-page and acknowledgment of copyrights in the hymnal. She tried to evolve a philosophy which would explain why Kennicott could never tie his scarf so that it would reach the top of the gap in his turned-down collar. There were no other diversions to be found in the pew. She glanced back at the congregation. She thought that it would be amiable to bow to Mrs. Champ Perry. Her slow-turning head stopped, galvanized. Across the aisle, two rows back, was a strange young man who shone among the cud-chewing citizens like a visitant from the sun-amber curls, low forehead, fine nose, chin smooth but not raw from Sabbath shaving. Her lips startled her. The lips of men in Gopher Prairie were flat in the face, straight and grudging. The stranger's mouth was arched, the upper lip short. He wore a brown jersey coat, a deft blue bow, a white silk shirt, white flannel trousers. He suggested the ocean beach, a tennis court, anything but the sun-blistered utility of Main Street. A visitor from Minneapolis, here for business? No. He wasn't a businessman. he was a poet. Keats was in his face, and Shelley and Arthur Upson, whom she had once seen in Minneapolis, he was at once too sensitive and too sophisticated to touch business as she knew it in Gopher Prairie. With restrained amusement he was analyzing the noisy Mr. Zitterl. Carol was ashamed to have this spy from the great world hear the pastors maundering. She felt responsible for the town. She resented his gaping at their private rights. She flushed, turned away. But she continued to feel his presence. How could she meet him? she must. For an hour of talk. He was all that she was hungry for. She could not let him get away without a word, and she would have to. She pictured and ridiculed herself as walking up to him and remarking, I am sick with the village virus. Will you please tell me what people are saying and playing in New York?" She pictured and groaned over the expression of Kennicott, if she should say, why wouldn't it be reasonable for you, my soul, to ask that complete stranger in the brown jersey coat to come to supper tonight? She brooded, not looking back. She warned herself that she was probably exaggerating, that no young man could have all these exalted qualities. Wasn't he too obviously smart, too glossy new? Like a movie actor. Probably he was a traveling salesman who sang tenor and fancied himself in imitations of Newport clothes, and spoke of, the swellest business proposition that ever came down the pike. In a panic she peered at him. No, this was no hustling salesman, this boy with the curving Grecian lips and the serious eyes. She rose after the service, carefully taking Kennicott's arm and smiling at him in a mute assertion that she was devoted to him no matter what happened. She followed the mystery soft brown jersey shoulders out of the church. Fatty Hicks, the shrill and puffy son of Nat, flapped his hand at the beautiful stranger and jeered, "'How's the kid? All dolled up like a plush horse today, ain't we?' Carol was exceedingly sick. Her herald from the outside was Eric Valborg, Elizabeth. Apprentice tailor. Gasoline and hot goose. Mending dirty jackets respectfully holding a tape measure about a paunch. And yet, she insisted, the boy was also himself. Three. They had Sunday dinner with the Smales, in a dining-room which centered about a fruit and flower piece and a crayon enlargement of Uncle Whittier. Carol did not heed Aunt Bessie's fussing in regard to Mrs. Robert B. Schmincke's bead necklace and Whittier's error in putting on the striped pants day like this. She did not taste the shreds of roast pork. She said vacuously, Uh, Will, I wonder if that young man in the white flannel trousers, at church this morning, was this Valborg person that they're all talking about. Yup, that's him. Wasn't that the darnest get-up he had on? Kennicott scratched at a white smear on his hard gray sleeve. It wasn't so bad. I wonder where he comes from. He seems to have lived in cities a good deal. Is he from the East? The East, him? Why, he comes from a farm right up north here, just this side of Jefferson. I know his father slightly. Adolf Valborg. Typical cranky old Swede farmer." Oh, really? Blandly. Believe he has lived in Minneapolis for quite some time, though. Learned his trade there. And I will say he's bright, some ways. Reads a lot. Pollock says he takes more books out of the library than anybody else in town. Huh. He's kind of like you in that. The Smales and Kennicott laughed very much at this sly jest. Uncle Whittier seized the conversation. That fellow that's working for Hicks, milksop, that's what he is, makes me tired to see a young fellow that ought to be in the war, or anyway, out in the fields earning his living honest, like I done when I was young, doing a woman's work and then come out and dress up like a show actor. Why, when I was his age, Carol reflected that the carving-knife would make an excellent dagger with which to kill Uncle Whittier. It would slide in easily. The headlines would be terrible. Kennicott said judiciously, Oh, I don't want to be unjust to him. I believe he took his physical examination for military service, got varicose veins—not bad, but enough to disqualify him. Though, I will say, he doesn't look like a fellow that would be so awful darn crazy to poke his bayonet into a hun's guts. Will, please! Well, he don't. Look soft to me. And they say he told Del Snaflin, when he was getting a haircut on Saturday, that he wished he could play the piano." Isn't it wonderful how much we all know about one another in a town like this? said Carol innocently. Kennicott was suspicious but Aunt Bessie, serving the floating island pudding, agreed. Yes, it is wonderful. Folks can get away with all sorts of meannesses and sins in these terrible cities, but they can't hear. I was noticing this tailor fellow this morning, and when Mrs. Rakes offered to share her hymn-book with him he shook his head, and all the while he was singing he just stood there like a bump on a log and never opened his mouth. Everybody says he's got an idea that he's got so much better manners and all than what the rest of us have, but if that's what he calls good manners, I want to know." Carol again studied the carving-knife. Blood on the whiteness of a tablecloth might be gorgeous. Then—fool, neurotic impossibilist—telling yourself orchard fairy tales—at thirty—dear Lord, am I really thirty? That boy can't be more than twenty five. 4. She Went Calling. Boarding with the widow Bogart was Fern Mullins, a girl of twenty two, who was to be teacher of English, French, and gymnastics in the high school this coming session. Fern Mullins had come to town early for the six weeks normal course for country teachers. Carol had noticed her on the street had heard almost as much about her as about Eric Valborg. She was tall, weedy, pretty, and incurably rakish. Whether she wore a low middy collar or dressed reticently for school in a black suit with a high-necked blouse, she was airy, flippant. "'She looks like an absolute toddy,' said all the Mrs. Sam Clarks disapprovingly, and all the Juanita Haydocks enviously. That Sunday evening, Sitting in baggy canvas lawn-chairs beside the house, the Kennicots saw Fern laughing with Si Bogart, who, though still a junior in high school, was now a lump of a man, only two or three years younger than Fern. Si had to go downtown for weighty matters connected with the pool-parlor. Fern drooped on the Bogart porch, her chin in her hands. "'She looks lonely,' said Kennicott. "'She does, poor soul.' I believe I'll go over and speak to her. I was introduced to her at Dave's, but I haven't called." Carol was slipping across the lawn, a white figure in the dimness, faintly brushing the dewy grass. She was thinking of Eric and of the fact that her feet were wet, and she was casual in her greeting. "'Hello. The doctor and I wondered if you were lonely.' Resentfully. "'I am.' Carol concentrated on her. "'My dear, you sound so.' I know how it is. I used to be tired when I was on the job. I was a librarian. What was your college? I was Blodgett." More interestedly, I went to the U. Fern met the University of Minnesota. You must have had a splendid time. Blodgett was a bit dull. Where were you a librarian? Challengingly. St. Paul, the main library. Honest? Oh, dear! I wish I was back in the cities. This is my first year of teaching and I'm scared stiff. I did have the best time in college. Dramatics and basketball and fussing and dancing, I'm simply crazy about dancing. And here, except when I have the kids in gymnasium class or when I'm chaperoning the basketball team on a trip out of town, I won't dare to move above a whisper. I guess they don't care much if you put any pep into teaching or not, as long as you look like a good influence out of school hours, and that means never doing anything you want to. This normal course is bad enough, but the regular school will be fierce. If it wasn't too late to get a job in the cities, I swear I resign here. I bet I won't dare go to a single dance all winter. If I cut loose and dance the way I like to, they'd think I was a perfect Hellion. Poor harmless me! Oh, I oughtn't to be talking like this! Fern, you never could be cagey." Don't be frightened, my dear. Doesn't that sound atrociously old and kind? I'm talking to you the way Mrs. Westlake talks to me. That's having a husband and a kitchen range, I suppose. But I feel young, and I want to dance like a... like a hellion, too. So I sympathize." Fern made a sound of gratitude. Carol inquired, what experience did you have with college dramatics? I tried to start a kind of little theatre here. It was dreadful. I must tell you about it." Two hours later, when Kennicott came over to greet Fern and to yawn, "'Look here, Carrie, don't you suppose you'd better be thinking about turning in? I've got a hard day tomorrow." The two were talking so intimately that they constantly interrupted each other. As she went respectably home, convoyed by a husband and decorously holding up her skirts, Carol rejoiced. "'Everything has changed. I have two friends, Fern and—' But who's the other? That's queer. I thought there was a—' Oh, how absurd!' 5 She often passed Eric Valborg on the street. The brown jersey coat became unremarkable. When she was driving with Kennicott in early evening she saw him on the lake shore reading a thin book which might easily have been poetry. She noted that he was the only person in the motorized town who still took long walks. She told herself that she was the daughter of a judge, the wife of a doctor, and that she did not care to know what capering tailor. She told herself that she was not responsive to men, not even to Percy Bresnahan. She told herself that a woman of thirty who heeded a boy of twenty-five was ridiculous, and on Friday, when she had convinced herself that the errand was necessary, she went to Nat Hicks's shop, bearing the not very romantic burden of a pair of her husband's trousers. Hicks was in the back room. She faced the Greek god, who, in a somewhat ungodlike way, was stitching a coat on a scaly sewing-machine, in a room of smutted plaster walls. She saw that his hands were not in keeping with a Hellenic face. They were thick, roughened with needle and hot iron and plough handle. Even in the shop he persisted in his finery. He wore a silk shirt, a topaz scarf, thin tan shoes. This she absorbed while she was saying curtly, "'Can I get these pressed, please?' Not rising from the sewing-machine, he stuck out his hand, mumbled, "'When do you want them?' "'Oh, Monday.' The adventure was over. She was marching out. What name?" he called after her. He had risen, and, despite the farcicality of Dr. Will Kennicott's bulgy trousers draped over his arm, he had the grace of a cat. Kennicott! Kennicott! Oh! Oh, say! You're Mrs. Dr. Kennicott, then, aren't you? Yes. She stood at the door. Now that she had carried out her preposterous impulse to see what he was like, she was cold. She was as ready to detect familiarities as the virtuous Miss Ella Stowbody. I've heard about you. Myrtle Cass was saying you got up a dramatic club and gave a dandy play. I've always wished I had a chance to belong to a little theatre and give some European plays, or whimsical like Barry, or a pagant." He pronounced it pagant. He rhymed pag with rag. Carol nodded in the manner of a lady being kind to a tradesman, and one of herself sneered, Our Eric is indeed a lost John Keats." He was appealing. Do you suppose it would be possible to get up another dramatic club this coming fall? Well, it might be worth thinking of. She came out of her several conflicting poses and said sincerely, There's a new teacher, Miss Mullins, who might have some talent. That would make three of us for a nucleus. If we could scrape up half a dozen we might give a real play with a small cast. Have you had any experience? Just a bum club that some of us got up in Minneapolis when I was working there. We had one good man, an interior decorator. Maybe he was kind of cis and effeminate, but he really was an artist, and we gave one dandy play. But I.... Of course, I've always had to work hard and study by myself and I'm probably sloppy, and I'd love it if I had training in rehearsing. I mean, the crankier the director was, the better I'd like it. If he didn't want to use me as an actor, I'd love to design the costumes. I'm crazy about fabrics, textures and colors and designs." She knew that he was trying to keep her from going, trying to indicate that he was something more than a person to whom one brought trousers for pressing. He besought, "'Some day I hope I can get away from this fool repairing, when I have the money saved up." I want to go east and work for some big dressmaker and study art drawing and become a high-class designer. Or do you think that's a kind of fiddling ambition for a fellow? I was brought up on a farm. And then monkeying round with silks. I don't know. What do you think? Myrtle Cass says you're awfully educated." I am, awfully. Tell me, have the boys made fun of your ambition? She was seventy years old and sexless and more advisory than Vita Sherwin. Well, they have at that. They've jollied me a good deal, here in Minneapolis both. They say dressmaking is ladies' work. But I was willing to get drafted for the war. I tried to get in. But they rejected me. But I did try. I thought some of working up in a gent's furnishing store, and I'd a chance to travel on the road for a clothing house, but somehow I hate this tailoring, but I can't seem to get enthusiastic about salesmanship. I keep thinking about a room in a gray oatmeal paper with prints and very narrow gold frames, or would it be better in white enamel paneling? But anyway, it looks out on Fifth Avenue, and I'm designing a sumptuous—he made it sumptuous—robe of linden-green chiffon over cloth of gold. You know, tillule. It's elegant. What do you think?" Why not? what do you care for the opinion of city rowdies, or a lot of farm boys? But you mustn't, you really mustn't let casual strangers like me have a chance to judge you." Well, you aren't a stranger one way. Myrtle Cass, Miss Cass should say, she's spoken about you so often. I wanted to call on you, and the doctor, but I didn't quite have the nerve. One evening I walked past your house, but you and your husband were talking on the porch, And you look so chummy and happy. I didn't dare butt in. Maternally, I think it's extremely nice of you to want to be trained in, in enunciation by a stage director. Perhaps I could help you. I'm a thoroughly sound and uninspired schoolman by instinct, quite hopelessly mature. Oh, you aren't either. She was not very successful at accepting his fervor with the air of amused woman of the world but she sounded reasonably impersonal. Thank you. Shall we see if we really can get up a new dramatic club? I'll tell you, come to the house this evening about eight. I'll ask Miss Mullins to come over and we'll talk about it." Six. He has absolutely no sense of humor. Less than Will. But hasn't he... What is a sense of humor? Isn't it the thing he lacks—the backslapping jocosity that passes for humor here? Anyway, poor lamb, coaxing me to stay and play with him. Poor lonely lamb. If he could be free from Nat Hickses, from people who say dandy and bum, would he develop? I wonder if Whitman didn't use Brooklyn backstreet slang as a boy. No, not Whitman. He's Keats, sensitive to silken things. Innumerable of stains and splendid dyes, as are the tiger-moth's deep damasked wings. Keats! Here! A bewildered spirit fallen on Main Street. And Main Street laughs till it aches, giggles till the spirit dows his own self and tries to give up the use of wings for the correct uses of a gent's furnishing store. Gopher Prairie, with its celebrated eleven miles of cement walk. I wonder how much of the cement is made out of the tombstones of John Keats's. 7. Kennicott was cordial to Fern Mullins, teased her, told her he was a great hand for running off with pretty schoolteachers, and promised that if the school board should object to her dancing, he would bat him one over the head and tell him how lucky they were to get a girl with some go-to her for once. But to Eric Valborg he was not cordial. He shook hands loosely and said Harya." Nat Hicks was socially acceptable. He had been here for years and owned his shop. But this person was merely Nat's workman, and the town's principle of perfect democracy was not meant to be applied indiscriminately. The conference on a dramatic club theoretically included Kennicott, but he sat back, patting yawns, conscious of Fern's ankles, smiling amiably on the children at their sport. Fern wanted to tell her grievances. Carol was sulky every time she thought of the girl from Kankakee. It was Eric who made suggestions. He had read with astounding breath and astounding lack of judgment. His voice was sensitive to liquids, but he overused the word glorious. He mispronounced a tenth of the words he had from books, but he knew it. He was insistent, but he was shy. When he demanded I'd like to stage suppressed desires by Cook and Miss Glaspell. Carol ceased to be patronizing. He was not the yearner, he was the artist, sure of his vision. I'd make it simple, use a big window at the back, with a cyclorama of a blue that would simply hit you in the eye, and just one tree-branch, to suggest a park below. Put the breakfast table on a dais, let the colors be kind of arty and tea-roomy, orange chairs and orange and blue table and blue Japanese breakfast set, and some place, one big flat smear of black, bang! Oh, another play I wish we could do is Tennyson Jesse's The Black Mask! I've never seen it, but—glorious ending—where this woman looks at the man with his face all blown away and she just gives one horrible scream! Good God! Is that your idea of a glorious ending?" bade Kennicott. That sounds fierce. I do love artistic things, But not the horrible ones," moaned Fern Mullins. Eric was bewildered, glanced at Carol. She nodded loyally. At the end of the conference they had decided nothing. End of chapter 28